everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture. And this week, we'll take a deep dive into Netflix's Unbelievable, a dramatized series based on the true story of a serial rapist and the victim who would not be believed. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, and Lacey to my Cagney, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified skunky cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Yes, hello. We're now the proud owners of a skunk-sprayed cat, Rocky Flintstone. Mm. Dirty boy. Dirty boy. He's such a dirty boy. Yeah, it's horrendous. Finally with us is our resident Doubting Thomas, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) Why do you sound like that, Toby? What's going on? That was my impression of that one cop on... Merritt Weaver, do not make fun of my girl, Merritt Weaver. I'm not making fun (laughs) of her. Do not do it. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Oh, that's my new you voice. Say a that's my bad new voice from now word on. About her. Gonna, Spoiler alert. I'm talk like this it all isn't. the time. <laughs> Spoiler alert if you say bad things about her, this is not going to go well tonight. All right. Well, before we start the show, I just want to plug a little bit what we've got going on on Patreon. Today on the Patreon After Show, the Patreon After Show that is dropping along with this episode, we will hear about an update regarding an annual recurring character on this podcast. I'll give you a clue as to who that is. She's very small and she's very inappropriate and we only see her in the summer on a sign. I'm also going to give the panel a chance to answer a question that I need to answer in real life, so I want you all to think about it. If there were a Mount Rushmore for true crime podcasts, what would be on it? Okay, put your thinking caps on, guys. You ready? We're going to talk about that in the Patreon after show. How can you carve a podcast? It's a good question. It's a very good question. That's what I need you to think about. Okay. Hey, Rebecca, can I take a minute to plug one thing? Sure. Uh, This year, I'm going to be, again, doing the Walk a Mile in Her Shoes event here in Concord, New Hampshire. It's a fundraiser for the uh, Crisis Center of Central New Hampshire, and I'm raising money by going with my friends and doing this walkathon where I wear high heel shoes. And uh, if you'd like to make a small donation, uh, sponsor me in my walk, 
Uh, there's a link on, uh, we're going to put it on the Facebook page and uh, on put the website. In the, show in the show notes. Make it this, easy. If you, if you give a, you know, a, a very uh, generous donation, I'll do whatever you want me to do in those shoes. <laughs> For now, good cause. Do you want to just like plug what the Crisis Center of Central New Hampshire does so people know what it is they're supporting when they support you? Yeah, I mean, the organization helps uh, primarily women who are in need of uh, emergency shelter. They're escaping a domestic or sexual or abusive relationship. Sometimes they have children as well. And it provides all sorts of crisis counseling services. But it's a volunteer network. They've got great support from the local police department and the, the sheriff's office. And the, the city uh, is really you know behind what they do. But it's a, it's a volunteer effort. And, you know, there's grant funding, but it really can't get the stuff done unless it fundraises. And uh, this is a fun way of doing it. And I have to say the listeners of Crime Writers On for the past couple of years have been great sponsoring me. You know, I'd say, hey, don't make me look bad. Help me out. <laughs> don't make you look bad when you raise like $104 against yeah. your goal of like $1,000 yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, really, honestly, every little bit helps. So it does. if you can... Throw, throw a little something towards my effort. and If not, then just have a good thought for us. I will match the first mm, $250 of donations that our listeners give. How does that sound, Kevin? Wow. All yes. right. Yes. I'll match it. I'll personally match it. But you know that's like our money, though. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sounds All like right. you might be matching it, Kevin. That's right. <laughs> 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 I wasn't thinking about being that generous, but all right, so whatever. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Listen, you have to throw an amount at a challenge grant. That's what we do on public radio, oh, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. You have to like, if you throw a challenge out, other people rise to the challenge. They want to put their like five bucks in or 10 bucks in and like help us raise that first 250. Yeah. Yeah. Give away a car. <laughs> I'll, hey, if you give away a car, I'll sign up. Drive a mile in her shoes. <laughs> Drive a mile in her shoes. I think if the crisis center uh, had a car to give away, they'd probably just keep the car. <laughs> I'm just guessing. It's probably a better thing, yeah. All right. Well, Kevin, before we move on to the show, can you please read this for me? True, True crime, crime podcast, podcast update. Whoa. Well, that was really good, Kevin. I didn't know if I had it in me. <laughs> wow. You've been taking my oxy, haven't you? I have to go rest. <laughs> <laughs> this is a story via APM Reports, our friends who make the In the Dark podcast. Curtis Flowers' defense team has filed a new motion for bail and for dismissal of his case. They filed two motions. After rising to the U.S. Supreme Court this summer, the murder case of Curtis Flowers landed back in the Mississippi courthouse on Thursday. That's today, as we record this, where it began nine years ago. Flowers' new lawyer filed two motions, one requesting bail and the other requesting the case be dismissed. That vividly previewed how he plans to attack the state's case against his client. Quote, there has never been any physical or forensic evidence connecting Flowers to the crime. The motive and methods ascribed to Flowers by the prosecution are objectively improbable. The witnesses relied upon to make up the circumstantial case for guilt have by turns been contradictory or unbelievable, wrote Rob McDuff. Flowers defense attorney. Now, I don't know how much you guys were able to look at this or dig into these motions, but I would just love your um, thoughts about these motions being filed. Of course, they are being filed in the same courts where this whole case happened. So, Kevin, what do you think? I'm always kind of pessimistic when uh, defense the, the attorneys, you know, make this pitch for for release 
pending trial in a in a murder case, certainly, you know, a capital case. I don't think that that's likely, but it doesn't hurt to, you know, start sending the artillery over. I'm kind of hoping that this might force um, the evil Doug Evans hand in terms of coming out and saying a little bit more about what he's planning to do with this case. He hasn't come out and said he's going to retry it. He's kind of hinted, right? But I haven't heard anything concrete one way or another. So I don't know. I think this is just like the first volley. I mean, I'm I'm glad that Curtis's attorneys are, you know, out there vigorously defending him and advocating for him. But let's see what Doug Evil Evans has to say about this. Hmm. What about you, Toby? Do you have any thoughts? It, it seems like the kind of thing that he, he kind of had to do, right? I mean, given the Supreme Court's ruling and all you can do is fail. So to me, it makes sense. But I don't know a thing about the law. So on sort of the face of it, it seems like the right move. I do like that uh, these this motion, especially the motion for bail, points out that these convictions were overturned again and again, that it's unprecedented that someone would be tried this many times for a crime of this type. And it did point out, by the way, the, quote, egregious actions of the prosecution here. And we all know who we're talking about. We talk about those egregious actions. Now, as of this taping, the In the Dark team has tried to reach out to Doug Evans for a comment. And he has not yet returned their request oh, for comments. Oh, really? Of course not. <laughs> he hasn't. Oh, fuck him. They should just hang out at that Mexican restaurant. Yes. <laughs> Offering to buy them lunch, though, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see what happens there. And that is our True Crime Podcast update for the week. Kevin, thank you for saying that for us. Want to give it one more go? Sure. True, True Crime, crime podcast. podcast Update. Oh, I missed your dulcet tone. If I Kevin try the Flynn. update, I'm just going to hit my break. And it's, it's not good. <laughs> All right. You guys ready to kick off the content portion of our show? I'm ready. Mm-hmm. It's going to be yes, a good one. It is. Hold on to your hats, people. I know this is hard, but I need to ask you some questions about what happened. He tied my hands. He said if I screamed, he'd kill me. Our topic tonight, Netflix is very much buzzed about new series, Unbelievable. It's a dramatic take on the true story of a serial rapist who escaped detection for years. The show follows two narrative timelines. The first focuses on a teenage victim who falsely recants her story under pressure from investigators. He brought a blindfold, but nothing to tie her with. Would a shoelace even hold her? You think Marie made up the attack? I'm pretty positive that it happened. Pretty positive or positive? They just kept asking me the same question. How come your story doesn't add up? I wanted to go home. I don't have a victim here. It's bogus. She made it up. The second thread takes place three years later and follows a pair of detectives who both happen to be women who realize the separate rape case they're working on may be connected. Black mask, bindings, early morning attacks. I think he's done this before. Aurora, 18 months ago. Intruder, black mask, backpack, tied around to photos. To date, has not been caught. Based on a Pulitzer Prize winning article, the series has a bit of everything. It has disturbing rape scenes, police procedurals, buddy cop chemistry, and the heartbreaking drama of the teenaged victim. Unbelievable veers from a hard-to-watch to a hard-to-look-away drama. A bingeable series that manages to enrage and entertain at the same time. 
Spoiler alert, we will be talking about plot points from the entire series. Unbelievable. So to stay spoiler free, look for the time code listed in our show notes. Now, I do want to start where, of course, the series starts, the very first episode, which is extremely difficult. The first episode is the story of the very graphic rape of a teenage victim and then her uh, police procedures afterwards, her examination, her interrogations. And the whole episode as a whole really just puts that there. We don't move on to the cop procedural stuff until episode two. While I was watching episode one, it was so difficult. And I did think a few times Will people not watch episode two if they think that the entire series is going to be like episode one? I actually thought it was a brilliant writing choice and a really good dramatic choice because I did continue. But I did find myself asking that question. Toby, what do you think about that? That's a good question. You do have to get through it to get to the rest of it. I guess that's an obvious thing to say, but the rest of it isn't as grueling, although it definitely has those moments. I I think it's the right choice. You need to know what the stakes are, and you need to know, to whatever extent you can, the experience that Maria's had to understand what a... It's not even really a betrayal, because I don't think she really trusts people to begin with, but her treatment by male police, but then also the woman who's her foster mother, or was her foster mother it makes it that much more sort of an emotional gut punch for for want of a better term. Now, we all know this was based on a true story. And if you've read the ProPublica article on which this series was based, you know that the series actually tracks very closely with many of the details in the true story, including uh, one of the ex-foster mothers not believing her and giving information to the police. Would it be okay if this stayed between us? You don't want me to take notes? I'd rather it be in confidence. I don't want to get back to Marie. All I kept thinking about when I was watching the series is I hope that woman is watching this. I hope she has to watch every minute of it. And I hope she's watching with other people who continue to turn to her and say, what the ever living fuck did you do? woman like betraying this young girl this way I don't know it was really something that character of course Judith played by the wonderful Elizabeth Marvel who we usually love but love to hate in this uh Laura what did you think of the setup for the series the first episode being that standalone um, of Marie's rape played by the of course the transcendent Caitlin Deaver who was also in the great film Booksmart what did you think of that episode like Toby said I I think that that was a good way to lead into this this story because you really get right from the beginning how violent and brutal and awful what she went through was. I mean, there's no question. It was hard to watch. I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch this. I mean, it was just really upsetting, really disturbing, really awful. And I think that is what makes you as a viewer really, as the story gets going, feel the sense like for me I was just enraged watching this I think that's important because this was such a you know I don't say I don't know if miscarriage of justice but it was a miscarriage of justice but it was just like this horrible breakdown in the system and I think having that scene right out front is hard but important Kevin what are your thoughts on episode one well I thought it was important for the audience 
to see the rape uh, through her eyes, but but also so that the audience knows it happened. Because at some viewers, if you know the way this would be going on, is they would start to wonder, well, did she make it up? Because they're presenting the circumstantial evidence that maybe she is making it up, and they want the viewer to remain steadfast in the knowledge that this did happen so that the consequences are clear and that you understand the frustration. And also that you understand why it ends up afterwards being hard for her to recant her refusal, her denial, you know, to go back on it after, you know, she realizes she did the wrong thing by saying it didn't happen, why she can't go back. It's interesting because... There doesn't seem to be like one tipping point, right, where it just all of a sudden flips and they don't believe it, you know, or the, the one thing that she did that was wrong because it was this gradual, all these little things that were happening that kind of, you know, weren't in a straight line. That's why it sort of just all comes to a boil, you know, like a pot of boiling water. All of a sudden, it comes to a boil in that interview with the two male detectives. You know what I really liked about those scenes with the cops, uh, especially in this episode, but then also you know near the end, is that it is easy for people to cast cops who don't believe women who say they were raped as villains, right? It is not as easy to imagine that somebody who isn't necessarily a villain can also be terrible at their job and have that result in a terrible miscarriage of justice. And the way the series portrays it isn't that this is a Doug Evans type who just likes to just be, you know, obstructionist and like go against the grain and, you know, wakes up in the morning thinking about like, you know, who can I put in jail today? The series anyway portrays this cop as like a reasonably measured guy who's not good at his job. Let me ask you one thing just so I'm sure I understand. Uh, in your statement, you wrote that you tried calling Connor, then called Judith, then cut yourself free. Yeah. In that order. Yeah. All right, thanks again, Marie. And that's different and more nuanced to me than a lot of other dramatizations we've seen of like false confession stuff and not believing women stuff as we've seen before. I don't know. I thought that was well done. It is until the point where they actually have him say it. <laughs> yeah, you hear about bad cops? You know, guys who make bad calls or end up hurting the people they're supposed to protect. And I always think like, well, who the hell let him on the force, right? Just get rid of him. Maybe we should get rid of me. There are, I will say, there are three bad scenes in this whole series and that's that's very few bad scenes for a very long series yeah it's just like look we we get it like you've shown it you don't have to now tell it right well uh moving on let's go on to the episodes that follow episode one because it does make this hard right turn and it turns from this story that is essentially marie's story into a procedural drama we have Two detectives played by Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver. They play Grace Rasmussen and Karen Duval, and they are called to the scene of a rape that has been committed against a woman named Amber. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Are you injured physically? Would you like to see a paramedic? No, they checked me out already. I'm fine. 
Now, Kevin, you loved, uh, first of all, we're going to talk about the performances in this in general. They're all like, for the most part, incredible. But you also loved it in addition to my completely falling in love with Merritt Weaver and, uh, you know, loving all the other actresses in this. You also love the actress who played Amber. Can you talk about her portrayal? Yeah, I mean, I think she did a very smart portrayal. I I would have to say that I I really love the casting of her because, you know, they didn't cast an ingenue. They casted regular-looking people and who could give a powerful performance. I think that was great. There is kind of an earthiness to a lot of this casting. Like, the the people in this series, even the way that they dress, for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, they look like real people, and they feel like real people, and they're not... It doesn't feel elevated in that way. I mean, except for maybe the view outside the cop shop office window, which, you know, in Colorado probably is that nice. I mean, it seemed like awfully nice to me, but uh, it doesn't feel like they've heightened the senses of of even just like the settings and the people in a way that, you know, made for TV stuff often feels like it has to. Is that what you mean? Yeah, they didn't go to the the length of trying to Hollywoodize everything. Mm. And everybody is a a slick model and that they are beefcake cop and it's it's the real world and you know I, I liked that I liked the realness of it all Laura Bricker you love Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver's characters as I do yes. Grace Rasmussen yes. and Karen Duval I want to be their friends in real life I loved that they felt like almost TV detectives to me because their characters were so awesome and you have the one who's kind of like the hard driving one and her like restored El Camino who's you know more badass of the two then you have the sweet church going one and I'm like it's like Cagney and Lacey but they're real but they're not real but they're not real but they're real to they're, me they, they track very closely with the two yeah. women who actually wore these they do I night. looked them up so I just I loved that you know when we first met them we see right away when we meet the Duval character the difference in a good investigation and a bad investigation. Amber, all our research has shown that the sooner a victim of a crime talks about it, the better his or her recall is. So if it's all right with you, I'd like to dive right in. Sure. Um, Where would you like me to start? The contrast was so stark to me. You know, it was like we went from the two male cops and, you know, they're questioning Marie in the living room and it's like she's still totally traumatized and and it's just it seems inappropriate and then we see Duval and it was just such a shift and you're like oh this is how you're supposed to do it and this is how you're not supposed to do it but I think that their empathy and their compassion um, really came through. I really loved that we didn't get any of the bullshit stuff they always saddle women cops with and everything we've ever watched about women cops. They don't saddle them with alcoholism. They don't saddle them with shitty relationships. They don't saddle them with stupid things where like, oh, I wish I was home with my kids, but instead I have to do this job. They, they just don't saddle them with that like bullshit that like really like bothers me as a feminist so much that Here like, I am working in a man's world. Yeah, they don't they don't do that. Like every like they have all mostly women on their team and like no one ever talks about the fact that they're women on the team. Like they just don't 
do any of that lazy ass bullshit stuff. Yeah, even in their relationships with their husbands. I felt like those seemed like real authentic relationships to me. You you know, you have the one whose husband's also a detective and you watch them, you know, trading places every night as one goes to work the night shift and one's home during the day and with their gun safe, you know, right inside the door. And then- I love the gun. Great detail. I, I loved that. I don't know why the gun safe thing just kept standing out to me every time I saw it. You know, and then we have Rasmussen's character who, you know, there's a little bit more at play with her and how, you know, she's so entrenched in the case and she's not paying attention to her relationship and she's not present. But that it didn't feel like you said, like some sort of stereotype or trope. It felt like this is a real thing that happens when you're in that position of being a detective and you are all consumed by a case. Buddy has thoughts, too, apparently. Buddy is being very vocal about this. Ken is back with the skunk emergency kit. Uh, He has come back from the 24-hour Walgreens in Exeter. So I will mute myself for a minute. Hey, wasn't it nice for those husbands to let their wives be cops? Oh, stop it, Kevin. Kevin. Stop it. It's really considerate of them. It's a good thing I'm not near you, Kevin. I would pop you one. People will understand probably when they hear the outtakes from this evening's show why we're all riled up against Kevin right now and he's bothering our feminist sensibilities. Now, Toby, what did you think of these two characters and the way that the show put them together, the way that it had them investigating together, interacting with one another? I know that you've now made fun of Merritt Weaver's incredibly nuanced line delivery like four times. So just go ahead and give me your thoughts. If you don't like them, just know I'm going to disagree in advance. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought they were. I thought they were fine. I guess I didn't see it as being like a ton different than a whole lot of other cop relationships, where you have like the one who's more experienced and a little more hard bitten, and then you've got the younger one who's a little more idealistic, and there's like a little bit of working out of you know the hierarchy or how they're going to work together or stuff like that. But you know, I think they're. I think they're basically attractive characters. I thought, especially with Merritt Weaver's character, at the very beginning when you meet her, there's this lot of concern about one of her daughters apparently has like asthma or pneumonia or something where they're checking her oxygen levels all the time. That seems like it's going to be a thing. And then you see one of the kids one more time, like lying down on the couch with her, and then you never hear about the kids again, which which is just kind of weird. Why even bring them up in the first place if they're just going to disappear to that degree? I didn't care about that. I was actually glad that they didn't do that. I would, if they'd done that, I would have been so pissed. Because if it was a guy cop, they would have done exactly the same thing. Seen him at home a couple times and then never think about their family again. But you, you see you see her at home a lot. But it's just like the, the kids just aren't a fact. So why even have it in the first place? Like, I didn't get that at all. It wasn't a big deal, but it was just kind of like, why would you write that in if you're just going to completely ignore it? afterwards so anyway I, I thought it was fine I didn't think it was like super groundbreaking or anything like that and I, I guess I had a little bit different sense than you did in that I felt like when men in authority were introduced into the story there was like as a viewer there was kind of a vetting process about whether you could trust them so when the FBI guy comes in, and they're suspicious of them, too. They're yeah, like, don't tell them anything because yeah. there's two things that could come out and neither one of them is good for us, except for the intern. It's like every guy who kind of becomes involved, you know, there's an initial kind of suspicion. And I, and I thought that was one of the effective things about the way it was written, because I was kind of surprised 
at how clunky some of it was, hmm. uh, given who were the writers on it. That's interesting. And it's interesting at that, you know, that you did point out that sort of, you know, men coming into the frame under a cloud of suspicion. That is true. That is a theme throughout the entire show that I also thought was really clever and not overdone. Kevin, there's one little scene in the middle of this series I just want to ask you about, mm-hmm. because there are a lot of scenes in the series that are more without being as ham-fisted and silly as SVU. They have more like those kind of notes, like when Merritt Weaver is in the diner with the guy who's clearly a perv and she just like shows him her gun (laughs) (laughs) or like, (laughs) you know, or like, you know, when they sort of have to be tough with suspects and stuff. And you sing the cock-a-doodle-doo song in the car. That's the scene I'm going to ask you about. Oh, really? Okay. All around the kitchen, cock-a-doodle-doodle-doo. All around the kitchen, cock-a-doodle-doodle-doo. All around. To me, a scene like that is what makes the series stand apart. We have a moment with a character alone for almost no reason except to watch her think about what she's about to do. And then they sort of have her do this thing that is so in line with her as a character. Well, the part that really makes that scene something you can't hear, you have to see it, is that she sings the verse and then it gets to the second verse and then she stops. And then she does things, just like takes a breath and like everything in her face just kind of, I don't want to say relaxes, but it just kind of sets in place. And that is her character that we see all the time is a very steady, strong, piercing stare. She is uh, speculative, but she's not biting her lip and twisting her hair or anything silly like that. She's strong. I like I like the Duval character because she is strong. She isn't written like she has to be bitchy to be strong, like a lot of women are written. She doesn't have to be shrill and yell at people. She admonished her uh, staff one time, but that isn't like what makes her strong or scary or anything like that. She's strong because she knows what she's doing and she holds herself that way. And I really like that about her character. How do you feel about the fact that they sort of, you know, roll in some of the elements of their personal lives? Like she and her husband are really religious. Uh, Tony Collette and her husband are not. They do enjoy fixing up old cars. Gracie. Okay, hear me out. I've got a list of names. No. You're not even going to hear me out. I can't use my position at the Attorney General's office to pull personnel files. You know that. It's in your power. This is what you do. In my official line of work as an investigator, yes. But not as a favor to anyone who asks. It's not anyone. It's me. There's no difference, hon. Well, thank you. Nice to know where I rank. You know, when you have two partners, uh, two, you know, paired characters, they have to be opposite. They can't both be the same kind of character. You got one who's serious and one who's a clown, and you've got one who's uh, old and one who's young, and so you have to find ways to make them stand apart. So you have to have one be, uh, you know, comfortably religious, religion and faith is just part of their, you know, her family, and then you have one who would, you know, rather have a glass of wine and and you know deal with life's problems that way. Now the the thing with uh, Rasmussen being you know the hard charging loner with the cool car and the I don't work with partners and that's just the way it's gonna be. I found that a little cliche and I didn't like it as much as the Duval character. I mean Merritt Weaver just really blew my socks off. Now, I 
want to get back to Marie's story because the series does jump back and forward in time. Uh, Toby, what do you think of those? First of all, what do you think of those time jumps? As a member of the audience, did you feel like it was sufficiently clear that you sort of understood where they were going? Uh, no, mm, I really totally had. <laughs> I, I think that I must have like missed when they established that they were different times because it took a while for me to realize like I was like so wait what happened like he was doing this and he must have like gone on a the the rapist must have like gone on a trip and like did something there and then came back like I just I couldn't figure out what was going on and that's probably just my bad for for missing it like maybe I was grabbing something to drink when it when they established that but when I I kind of like figured it out I, I can't even remember when and I was like oh okay so this is like definitely happening afterwards and it kind of made a little more sense. It could definitely just be me, but I did not pick up on the fact that there are two different timelines going on. Hmm. I kind of missed the first bounce back myself in episode two. It took a halfway through. I realized what they were doing. Hmm. You know when they show yeah. the card, but but I did. I did miss. I mean, I, the the jump back. I did miss that. I guess it's close enough that you don't have the usual cues of like My they didn't do any and, of the cues. Yeah. yeah. Like where they have different hair or like they have a slightly different tint to the to the camera like they do sometimes when they're showing different times. Like it's it's just basically everything kind of just looks the same. It's just right. taking place in two different locations. Yeah. I missed it completely, but I, I'm sure people are going to be like, what the hell's wrong with him? <laughs> because it was why, so obvious. Why is he getting up and getting a drink during this amazing series? That's his problem. <laughs> For me, as a as a viewer, I picked up on, I think at one point I had seen, you know, they, they put the year up. But I liked it because I think if I watched it from the chronological order of what Marie was going through and I had to wait three years to see something that was like upping the suspense that I knew they were going to get this guy, I don't know if I would have been able to make it through it. It gave me hope at least to know that when I went to that other timeline, things were happening that was going to change the course of things. It's also the way the article is written. The ProPublica story is written exactly the same way, which I thought was very cool of them that they stayed true to the format of the piece. Yeah, so I I liked that because I think if I'd watched it chronologically, I would have just been like, oh my God, this is the most depressing thing because it was just one horrible thing after another that happened to Marie with like, She's losing her housing. The people make the website about her. Her friends don't want to hang out. You know, all the people in her group therapy when she, you know, recants the story and and says it didn't happen, all like don't want to be. So I think watching something like that without knowing that there was something coming down the pike that was going to change the course of this would have just been too overwhelming. But then you're thinking, that's what she went through. Laura, I, I do want to talk about those scenes, though, with Marie and her foster mom. Yeah. She has two of them in the series, of course. Uh, one of them played by Elizabeth Marvel, the one that we hate. And then the, also the super nice one who uh, tries very hard Colleen. and does tip off the police at one point. Um, and we get sort of glimpses into, you know, her backstory here with these two women what did you think of those scenes? You know, and in particular, you know, Judith, because she does play such an important part in derailing Marie's life by seeding doubt in the minds of the police about her story. With Judith, the foster mother, I, you know, the first scene we see her in, she's there, she's in the apartment right after the rape happened. You know, she's being supportive. And then the counselor comes and you, you're like, this is really nice that she's still in touch with her foster mom. But then... When she goes to the detective and 
out comes this story about how she thinks that Marie was showing off and she was dancing and she's attention seeking and the story doesn't make sense. Honey, settle down. Marie, that's enough. Marie, hey, hey, get off the table. Marie, Marie, there are children present. Enough. Ugh, I just... And I feel like if you're a foster parent, I think you need to have some sort of working knowledge of how, you know, childhood trauma, what kids have gone through that have been in foster care, so that you're not jumping to conclusions like she did in such a way that it really ended up with planting that seed of doubt with the detectives the way that it's portrayed in the show. And that's where things just start to go off the rails. So I was watching her. I was just like so enraged. I mean, at one point I wanted to be, you know, more angry at the detectives, but I don't know. I think I might have been more angry at her, quite honestly. Hmm. What about you? I mean, I just was like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I like I said before, I really want the real woman to actually have to watch this with other people in the room and be die of embarrassment. So she did. I saw an article that was an update by one of the people who wrote that ProPublica piece, and they actually spoke with Marie. And there's an article like about what Marie thought about the Netflix series. And in that, Marie made a note of saying, you know, a point of saying that she had reached out to both of the foster mothers and tell them, like, it's not, don't worry, you're not demonized too much. And I'm like, "Ah, I guess it's a matter of interpretation because I came away being like, you know. Well, But, But also, you know, there was an episode of This American Life that dealt with this where they interviewed Marie and the mother, I think, uh, I think in real life her name's Patty or I guess it doesn't matter, but the Elizabeth Marvel character. And at the end, she made some comment along the lines of, well, Marie should take some responsibility for acting the way that she did after the rape, uh, which led people down the wrong, you know, got the wrong conclusion. I can't deal with it. I can deal with, okay, so here's the thing that I can deal with. I can deal with her looking at behavior that Marie had as a kid that like intention-seeking stuff, whatever, and like sowing that doubt. That, it's not forgivable insofar as, you know, she was completely wrong and it was a shitty thing for her to do, but it's understandable. But the whole behavior after the rape thing, I just can't even with this. I can't because it absolutely points to all of the reasons why A, women don't report and girls don't report, but also when they do, why it's so infrequently successfully prosecuted or followed up on in the right way. That's just underlining it. There's no way to act after a rape, after a traumatic attack. There's just no way to act. There's no way to grieve. Yeah. You know, there's always, we, we always look at a crime and we start analyzing the way people are acting and saying, that's suspicious or, or whatever. You know, if they get a new passport and they go to the airport, that is legitimately suspicious. But because one person is solemn and another one is hysterical, that doesn't prove anything. And it just ends up being a way to mislead and get um, a bad result. All right. So I'm going to just throw one thing out there that I think was a very terrible scene in the series. Because there are so few terrible scenes in the series. I'm just going to say it. I think this is one of the best things I've watched in a very long time. Which is why when they put in a scene like this, it makes me want to die. When the sample size is too small for CODIS, there's another DNA test we can use. YSTRs, which look for short tandem repeats in the DNA. Still with us, Mr. Genome? Sure. The 
test looks for repetitive small sequences of DNA on the Y chromosome. Mm, Mr. Genome sure is. And since only men have the Y chromosome, this test automatically cuts the suspect pool in half. Correct. No women. And can narrow it So in that down. scene, we heard something that happens on the world's worst poorly written TV shows, which is when a character explains something to an intern or the new guy so that the audience will understand it. Oh, my God. So dumb. And especially the detail afterwards where the intern says, yeah, I studied genetics. <laughs> I could I know more about the DNA than you, yes, lady. Yes, it's my only complaint That's about the series. Yeah. The other two scenes that I didn't love were like, okay, that wasn't great. But that one, uh, it's just stuck out because the rest of the scenes in the show were so good. Well, sort of overall, look, it, it is a dramatic reinterpretation of true events. They get to do you know whatever they want as far as embellishing or making you know putting words in people's mouths because that's the format. I don't mind that they made up you know scenes that probably really didn't happen. I doubt that the cop that is portrayed by Merritt Weaver actually pulled over at gunpoint a similar Mazda you know, and then let the guy go or they had these different discussions. you know I mean those were all just character building things i didn't mind that in the bit i enjoyed that i thought that pulled over scene didn't like it i I don't know if hack needs the right word but you know seriously you know there's a whole bunch of white mazdas you've already established that you're just going to pull one over just sort of willy-nilly i didn't like the scenes where there's like two extended scenes of tony collette and merritt weaver talking and I, i was just like surprised by how clunky those scenes were given that the writers is like Michael Shaban and uh Ayelet Waldman these conversations just seemed so you know I just kind of felt like I'd heard them before that they were almost like sort of pro forma you know the the my first call and you know this guy had beaten up his wife and I just had a bad feeling about it but the guys were like oh come on let's go drinking and I had a bad feeling but I went drinking anyway and then he went back and he killed her I feel like I've heard that story again and again and again. So why do I have to hear it here? I completely disagree. I couldn't disagree you know? more. I loved the scenes with the two of them together. I loved oh, them. God. They're I loved endless. all of them. I want them a whole series, just like Scott and Bailey. Yeah. I could watch the two of them sitting and doing like like sewing together. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on that one because yeah. I, I thought those scenes were were rough. <laughs> uh, I know that you also thought it was rough that they could just be sitting in their cars outside some dude's house and he would never notice. Maybe that's because we live in New Hampshire and we would totally notice. I mean, that was not a criticism of just this, but as I was watching, I'm like, how do people not notice when there's just like people hanging out in a car right outside your house for like hours and hours and hours? Especially if you've been up to no good. (laughs) Right. I was listening to a podcast where somebody was talking about how they were staking out what they thought was going to be like this mob get together and they had a van and, you know, there's like a little bit of people going in and out and like this one car pulled up of these mob guys. And they're like, that is a cop van. And then they like pulled out their guns and the and the van had to take off. I was like, no, no, that's more what I would expect. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It's so funny because there are so many things about this real story that are so dramatic that it's hard to believe that they're true, but they are. One instance of those things being that they did have two brothers it played out exactly like it happened, according to the article, exactly like it happened in the show, where they thought the suspect was out 
And so they knocked on the door real casual and then the other guy answered the door and it turns out they have brothers who would then both end up being suspects. That's like something that would happen like in Silence of the Lambs or something. But like it was real. That's actually what happened. So maybe that's why I forgave so many of the other cop stuff because a lot of those important things actually happened. Laura, what do, what do you think? I mean, it sounds like you agree with me that you could watch these two women in a room together playing the spoons or doing nothing. I loved the dynamic between them because I think it's like you had, like Kevin was saying, you had two different characters. You know, you have the one who's more mild-mannered, the other one who's a little more like, what the fuck, like, you know, taking no prisoners. I enjoyed watching the dynamic as they were investigating and as they were, you know, so singularly focused on solving this. And I also liked, it seemed like their entire team was women, uh, except for the one guy who figured out at the end the license plate of the suspect. The intern. Yeah. You know, as I was watching it, even though it is based on a real-life story, the portrayal of these detectives for me was like I wanted to see them like where's season two what are they going to do next like yeah I know I I would see a dramatized version of them solving another crime for sure for some reason I don't know the dynamic and the chemistry between them as actors really for me I liked watching and I've liked shows where the uh, protagonists are people who are cops and not cops who are people you know I I think of Fish from Seven Seconds and Henry from Mosaic, just sort of regular people that are not, you know, the stereotype of I've seen a lot of shit and it's made me mad kind of cop. And, I, you know, I, I, I get that from this female character. It's somebody who just is, you know, a, a regular person who's very good at her job, which happens to be being a police officer. Yeah, not like a person who... uh it's all, all that I ever wanted to be. And I live and breathe it all day, every day. You well, yeah, know I mean, kind that, of character? It's three-dimensional. I see her as three dimi- a three-dimensional character. Well, I'd love to take a couple of seconds uh, here to address some questions and comments brought up by the fine folks in our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. Rebecca had a really interesting one. Hey, Rebecca. I love people named Rebecca. Rebecca says, could you talk about the local media's role in what happened to Marie? I was mostly wondering about the ethics policies of the local outlets when they were reporting on the story. Did reporting about her recanting her statement ultimately serve a public good? Yeah, I, I, again, I don't know how much of that tracks with uh, the real story. If there was a news report that said a stranger broke into an apartment building and attack somebody, the public felt like they were at risk. There was somebody out there who might be doing that next. If they had reason to believe, because the cops told them this, that that was an inaccurate report, then I think it does serve the public interest and the news interest to go on and do a story saying that story was false. And we know it's false because the person recanted it. Right. As far as trying to identify who that was and get her photo and do a story, and then the next day, there's a bunch of photogs and and, uh, other reporters outside looking to get, is that her? You know, trying to get an interview or chase her down for a misdemeanor crime? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think think that's dramatically embellished. I would be very surprised if a suspect in a, you know, a false report case like that who was a minor would be identified publicly. Hmm. She was charged, though, in real life. She was. Yes, she was. 
Uh, Toby, what did you think of the, the character of Lily? This is the victim that we see in the show who wasn't actually raped, but jumped out of her window. Oh, uh, yeah. Also, by the way, like a, an unreliable victim as far as the cops go. Like they didn't really like they weren't super into buying her story either and didn't overly investigate her case. But she is portrayed by the amazing Annalie Ashford, who's also in Masters of Sex, who Kevin and I really, really love as an actress. I am scared. All of the time, every minute of every day, my friends try to help me, but I have a hard time trusting people. Uh, I can't sleep. I'm in pain. <clears throat> I've lost weight. I've lost work. I've lost money. What did you think of her character, Toby? I mean, I think she, in a very short period on screen, was kind of a complicated character. I mean, I, I think she portrayed like this this combination of sort of anger and being wounded and traumatized in a way that seemed very sort of genuine and believable. I, I think all of the side characters in this are all, and I'm trying to think of an exception, but I thought almost all of them were really good. Totally. I think they were well-written. They were well-acted. You got a feeling very efficiently that these were you know, real people with real lives who'd had this thing happen to them. They didn't seem like, oh, we've got to put in a person here or a person there. I mean, it's they seemed very rich characters. They did. Even characters only on screen for a short period of time. We have the court clerk who she goes to, Marie goes to when she has the warrant for her arrest. And, uh, that would never she- happen. What's that? Oh, yeah. A court clerk saying, <laughs> oh, hold on, let me go. I'll get you a lawyer. Yeah, that was not believable. <laughs> no. Well, it's funny because you think that would never happen, but that actually has happened in cases that we have written about, Kevin, where it's like... No, no, no. The, a court employee oh, can't give you legal no, advice or something can't. like that. They can't. They have a thing. They hand you a piece of paper that's like, here's a referral paper. <laughs> Go talk to someone else. But you know they had to condense like a whole day's worth of activity oh, sure, just one yeah. quick scene. So. Yeah, there you go, yeah. <laughs> and it was just kind of a relief to see somebody... Not being a dick to her? Yeah, yeah like like kind of have her best interest in yeah. mind. Bench warrant. Am I going to jail? Nah, I'll fix this. <laughs> and I fixed it. And then, of course, we have the great Brooke Smith, uh, who you might know from Grey's Anatomy as Dr. Han. And before that, uh, I think her most famous role that launched her into Hey, It's That Guy stardom status was her role as the victim in a well in Silence of the Lambs, who uh, gets the hose on her again. Uh, <laughs> Laura Bricker, what did you think of her portrayal of the therapist that is also not a dick to our friend Marie? She's like my other hero of this this whole series. I loved her. Because, you know, when you hear court-appointed therapists, you know, they have to uphold their job as a therapist. You also kind of wonder, who are they beholden to? This person or the court that they have to report back to? And I loved watching it when they just sat there, you know, to watch the evolution of the relationship and and really, you get a sense of how long it took for her to gain Marie's trust. No one makes up something like that, unless there's an element of truth to it. Whether you were raped that night or invented a story about being raped that night, I think the truth is you've been violated. All right, so it looked like it took about 45 minutes. <laughs> I think that was probably also condensed. It was condensed, <laughs> but the, the different sessions. But when she came out and she, like, you, you could tell that she knew that it was bullshit that this this rape did not happen that she knew that something had happened i was like 
yes, somebody else that's a good human being because this poor girl has just been up against it and like everybody's fucking her over. And I was just like, finally, somebody else who actually is looking out for what's happening to her. We have a question from uh, Iva or Eva. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name, although I do know who you are because I uh, have corresponded with you many times. Um, She asks, are you curious about Marie's life, how she's doing, and maybe say a few words about how it's possible to be a perfectly ethical journalist and then screenwriter, create an award-winning thing, and protect the victim who want to be protected. So I think uh, what Eva or Iva is interested in, Kevin, is the ethics around an anonymity in the source material for this of Marie. Well, I think they, both the uh, the authors of the original article and the producers of the movie uh, did a good job of protecting her identity. I like that they gave her a pseudonym as opposed to just calling her the victim yeah, yeah, by making up a name. And no, like, they call her Marie in the article. Right, right. They could have written it such as, you know, this lady, this oh, girl, yeah, yeah. Um, the Jane Doe. I think Marie is actually her the middle voyeur. name. The voyeur. What the hell was that? Key the to thing leave. about the guy with the hotel. Yeah. I think it humanized her to find a way to bring her story to life without giving up uh, her identity, where she lives. I think all that we found out is that she's a long-distance trucker. Oh, really? Yeah. It's from the article. That's so interesting. Yeah. She, she became a long-distance trucker, which is why it was so poignant to see her get her driver's license in the show. It yeah. seemed like such a like a hurdle for her to overcome, and then knowing that she became a, a driver for a living, like it added some punch to that scene, you know. All right, so question from Katie. Uh, by the way, Katie, shout out! I've known Katie for a very long time. What of the other male cop who badgered Marie into the false retraction? I would have liked to have seen a little more comeuppance, remorse, or something. And then Katie mentions the scene that uh, Toby mentions he didn't like. Uh, She said it was simultaneously satisfying that the guy was caught and horrifying that the many crimes were committed that he could have done something to prevent had he done his job even slightly more effectively. She's talking about Parker saying that uh, he's not a very good police officer there. So what do you think of those scenes and especially the other male cop who, of course, is what's his face from Coach, right, Kevin? Moose or whatever his name is. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of was like that. They kind of left hanging. It's like the only time you see him is like there's the scene at the bottom of the stairs where Marie comes into the police department and you see him kind of just like walk down the stairs kind of like and then he like leaves and I'm like, oh, okay. And I did read in the article um, because I after this, I wanted to get more details. The police department acknowledged what happened and, and that this was clearly just really a breakdown in their investigative process processes and everything, but that nothing had happened to these two police officers. So I was curious if that scene at the end where, you know, first we have the scene out at the go-kart place, and and then we have the scene where he says, I'm not a very good detective. But the go-kart thing, I think that did happen in real life, because that's when they gave her like the $500 check. And I'm like, really? So, I mean, I was glad to see, at least here on Netflix, taking some, uh, you know, responsibility for how the investigation mistakes in the investigation led to this happening. But I I don't know what happened to the other guy. I would like to know myself. Uh, One other question I have for all of you, because something that I thought was an unusual choice that we don't see very often in series like this. The penultimate episode of the series is the climax of the series. You know, there is the stakeout, the, uh, you know, taking the glass from the restaurant, finally catching the guy. And then finally, the connection when they break into his photo files between their case and Marie's case. And it struck me as I was watching this that it would have been easy 
an easy choice. And we see it over and over and over again for the filmmakers or the network to tell the filmmakers to just do like a 10 or 15 minute kind of like epilogue part of that episode and then wrap it up. But they didn't do that. There was a whole other episode after that, kind of a denouement episode where they tied up a lot of loose ends. We get a lot of time spent with the Marie and the foster mothers. We sort of see the fallout. We see this sort of action as it plays out. We watch her legal resolution. I really loved that choice, but I'm curious to know what you guys thought about it because it did tack some time and some of those scenes that maybe Toby doesn't like as much onto the story. Kevin, what did you think of that? Well, I thought it was important because I think that's what the story calls for is you have to wrap up the two timelines and bring them back together because that's as soon as we start this, we know that eventually what is going to happen is you're going to have to have some sort of resolution between these two divergent stories. They have to come together at the end because we have episode one is so is all Marie and I think that though, although Marie is weaved into all the other episodes, they really aren't her episodes. They're really about the two cops. To bring it back, I think you have to provide a little more balance on the other end to wrap up her storyline. Tony Collette, Merritt Weaver, Caitlin Deaver. You can only give one of them the Emmy. Who do you give it to in this series? Which one's the young one? That would be Caitlin Deaver. Her. What about you, Laura Bricker? That's a tough one. I mean, I say her, but the other two were just so tremendous as well. I would say the runner-up is the religious detective, Merritt Weaver. Yeah. Yeah, I give it to Merritt Weaver. I think all the performances in this series were great, even from some of the bit players. Uh, I, despite Toby's impression, cannot take my eyes or ears off of Merritt Weaver on the screen. I find her incredibly compelling as an actress, and I think her performance is astonishing in this. We loved her performance in Godless. We did. She was the only thing we liked about that stupid show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. (laughs) She reminds me of, in this show, it just reminded me of some detective. She looks even, looks like a detective that I know from somewhere on the seacoast, and it was driving me crazy as I was watching it. She even dresses like a real cop in this series. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Kevin, what about you? Tony Collette, Caitlin Deaver, or Merritt yeah. Weaver, who wins the Emmy for you? Uh, best Leading Actress is Merritt Weaver. Best Supporting Actress is Caitlin Deaver. You're cheating. You're cheating by just giving them both. No, well, they're not. And all three of them aren't going to enter the same category. Come on. <laughs> and we know that Tony Netflix Collette is smarter has a, than that. I think Merritt Weaver has an Emmy, and I think Tony Collette has tons of awards. She so also she has can, an Emmy, yeah. She can sit down this one time, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she did for the arrest. <laughs> she, she was giving it to she her. She won't even go. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Crime Writers on panel. Do we recommend that our audience check out Unbelievable on Netflix, yay or nay? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Absolutely. I think this is like the best series on Netflix that we have watched in a very long time. Um, It was hard to watch. It was, I mean, I have to tell you, when I finished this, I was like, that was intense. I need to go rewatch like the Gilmore Girls or something because I just can't take any more. It was it was heavy, but it was so well acted. Like I loved all of the people, the actors in it, um, the way that the story was told on the two different timelines. And also, I think because it was true, it was something that, you know, some people I'm sure read the ProPublica report, but this is just another level of awareness that things like this happen. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Unbelievable on Netflix? I give it a thumbs up. I don't think I liked it as much as you guys did, but it, it is, it's really good. It's a cut above most most things. There are some parts I thought were, were kind of clunky. 
but for the most part, I mean, it's an, it's an amazing story. And I thought most of the stuff in it was like sort of top shelf. So yeah, a, a strong thumbs up. I'm giving it a very strong thumbs up. Probably the strongest thumbs up I've given anything I can think that we've reviewed in the last, I don't know, six months to a year. I loved this series. I loved it. I loved everything about it. The first episode, of course, is a very tough watch, but it's also necessary. I will say if there's anybody out there who has avoided watching the series because they understand that it has violent scenes of rape in it, it does. And if you want to skip the first episode, it is possible to sort of read the recap of the first episode, do not skip the rest of this series because you've been waved off or warned off of the first episode. It is a suspenseful and dare I say at times fun detective drama. I have not enjoyed watching two actors work together as a pair of detectives on screen since True Detective season one. And I enjoyed these two women as a pair of detectives more than I enjoyed the pair of detectives in True Detective season one. So huge thumbs up for me. I loved Unbelievable. And even though it would be a betrayal of the source material, I would 100% endorse them taking these fictionalized versions of these detectives and giving them another mystery to solve so we could have another season. That's how much I loved it. What about you, Kevin Flynn? I am also a thumbs up. I think Unbelievable makes a good companion to When They See Us, where they are able to take a little more dramatic license in the way they present the story. But where one is uh, an example of how the system fails uh, suspects, this is one where you see it failing victims. And kind of for many of the same reasons, the same faults. And it's just a a great uh, set of performances by everybody. And when it comes time for the Emmys, I know that they will be sweeping up. Do you ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest Internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the The crime crime of the week. Of the week. 
Patty Baumgartner of Polson, Montana, was getting tired of cars zipping through her neighborhood, so she took the law into her own hands. Baumgartner tried to slow cars down by sitting at the end of her driveway and pointing a radar gun at speeders, <laughs> but she doesn't really own a radar gun, so this grandma used a hairdryer. <laughs> The whole thing looked official enough that cars have been slowing down when Baumgartner aims her blow dryer in their direction. The stunt caught the attention of the Montana Highway Patrol, who made her an honorary trooper, giving her a hat and a badge. It's not clear if cars have been slowing down because merely being out there is enough to remind drivers of their speed, or whether or not they're afraid of her giving them a blowout. Panel, this grandma found a clever way to use a hair dryer to keep her community safe. What other things around the house might help her fight crime? Lara Bricker, what do you think? Um, I'm going to go with her rolling pin to fight those porch pirates who come and try to steal your Amazon packages. (laughs) 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 What about you, Toby Ball? What do you think Patty Baumgartner could use around the house to fight other kinds of crime? Uh, Well, I was trying to think of like who who I knew who would sit in their car with a hair dryer to intimidate drivers. And of course, Laura Bricker was the one who came to mind. So I'm thinking uh, probably a drug sniffing cat. (laughs) What about you, Kevin? What other household item can this grandma use to uh, solve crimes? She can do what my grandma did to maintain the peace. Take out the wooden spoon. (laughs) That's all you needed. Just one time, right? Order was restored. (laughs) All right. Can we just like say quickly that we do not believe in corporal punishment or spanking on this podcast, right, Kevin? Well, I don't anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We should probably end it on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Yeah, so I, one of my favorite internet cats, I'm, I don't know, I know some of our listeners have probably seen Grandpa Mason and his kittens. So Grandpa Mason is going, probably by the time this podcast comes out, I've been watching his Facebook page, his kidneys have failed and he is going to be no more. Oh my God. We have like a dying cat as our cat well, of the week. Gra- you ha- go watch his inspirational video on his Grandpa Mason page. He was a crusty, cranky, old feral cat that was rescued late in life hated people oh, he's cantankerous Kevin. He's, but he became like the foster grandpa for all these kitten cats all these years for three years he has lived with these lovely people and he i was so sad when i saw it. i was like oh, not grandpa mason um so Aww. they brought him home for one last night with his little kittens and gave him some happy drugs so that he would be not in pain and then you know but if you haven't watched that video, I highly recommend you go watch the original one they put up about how he came to be. It's it's very inspirational. You know how he came to be, Lara Bricker? When a mommy cat and a daddy cat love each other <laughs> no. very much. Oh, stop it. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right. We should probably definitely end it on that note. Lara Bricker, people want to reach out to you and send you their live and well cats or dogs to be cat of the week how can they find you on twitter at lara bricker toy ball folks want to tweet to you about how much they vehemently disagree with your not stellar review or as stellar as it should be review of unbelievable how can they find you on twitter i gave it a pretty good review you said uh, it was but clunky you if- used the word clunky toby we all heard it i said it was clunky in parts <laughs> uh, but if you want to dispute even that minor criticism you can reach me at toy ball nh and kevin flynn he folks gonna reach out to you and say we're so glad to have your true crime podcast update voice back how can they find you on twitter i'm at kevin p flynn and if you want to follow me on twitter or instagram you can find me at reb lavoy you can also follow the show on twitter at crime writers on 
And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. Support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, and a really great Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker podcast in which she goes for a walk with some crotchety old men. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, but not Studio C, the closet where I tell all the complicated stuff to our intern so that the audience can know what's actually going on. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. And in the second timeline, that thread takes place three years later and follows a pair of female detectives who realize that <laughs> the female detectives are not going to say that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's the journal. Kevin, you know what uh, female detectives are also called? Detectives. Lady detectives. <laughs> Nancy Drews. Okay, here we go. The second thread takes place three years later and follows a pair of detectives. Detectives. Stop it, Kevin. I'm actually recording this. Plucky. I can't take it. Plucky. They're plucky. <laughs> Queens. Oh, God. <laughs> God, I hate all of you. Okay. Even Laura, she's not doing anything. I know. I don't hate her. Thank you. The second thread takes place three years later and follows a pair of detectives who both happen to be women who realize the separate rape case they're working on may be connected. And their period sync up. Jesus. <laughs> 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 oh, my goodness. What is happening? The karma's going to be terrible tonight. on this, Kevin. <laughs> the karma is just really going to kick your ass. <laughs> okay this is the most feminist thing we've ever talked about and we're fucking ruining it all right come on little lady partners in crime media Whatever struggles you're facing from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code CRIME. Crime. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com slash crime, crime and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.